Craft Beer Radio presents the 2012 Saver Salons. For the fifth year, we recorded the salons at Saver. This year, there were 18 in all, six educational salons and 12 private tasting salons. You can find all the Saver podcasts, including ones from the past five years, all on our website at craftbeerradio.com. Terra Incognita number two. This is the same salon as the first night, but there may be some variations in the content. Named after the Saver commemorative beer, this salon features Sierra Nevada and Boulevard Brewing Company, the brewers who collaborate on the beer. They discuss the brewing of the beer and pair it with food indigenous to each brewery's location. Hello and welcome. I'm sensing some thirstiness out there. This this. This first group, you know, it's like the first, well, maybe not the first beer of the evening, but uh, you haven't had a chance to try any beers out there yet anyway. I'm Tom McCormick. I'll be your host for the evening. I'm with the California Craft Brewers Association. Anybody here from California? Nope. Darn. Well, a couple up here. I'm uh, here on behalf of the Brewers Association, which is the national trade association representing the independently owned craft brewers uh, all across the country, now over 2,000 of them. In last count, there was 217. There's probably 218 right now. Um, We're growing. The industry is growing. It's very exciting. The Brewers Association is the group that puts on Saver and these salons. Um, They also put on a little beer festival that some of you might have heard of in Denver, Colorado every year called the Great American Beer Festival. How many people have been to the GABF? A few. Okay, it's a great beer festival. It happens every year in Denver, um, this year, October 11th and 13th. And you can find out more about that and all things craft beer at craftbeer.com. That's uh, the website of the Brewers Association. And it's a great, great resource, great website for all things craft beer. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsor here tonight, which is Ray's Beverage Company. And also, um, just so you know, we're, broad, or we're recording uh, this session and we're recording all the salons this evening as well as last night. And you can hear all of those on craftbeerradio.com. So if there's other salons that you looked interesting to you, you can go to craftbeerradio.com and listen to those. Um, well, I'm going to introduce uh, the stars here uh, tonight. We have uh, Scott Jennings, a head brewer at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Steve Dressler, head brewer at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Stephen Paulwells, who's a head brewer at Boulevard Brewing Company. The founder and um, owner of Boulevard Brewing Company, John McDonald. And the founder and owner of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Kevin Grossman. And I'll let them take it away. Thanks, John. I'll kick things off here, and then we'll pass the mic around. Uh, one thing uh, this evening, we encourage you to ask questions, so throughout the evening, if there's something that uh, we're talking about that's maybe not clear to you, feel free to raise your hand, and, and we'd be happy to answer any questions. Um, this actually is the, the second year that a collaboration was done for SAVER. Um, we, uh, we were asked to uh, put together a collaborative beer uh, with Boulevard Brewing. Uh, John McDonald uh, and I are... Uh, old friends, we go uh, back in the brewing industry quite a few years. I'm a, a little bit older, but uh, John came uh, shortly after we got started. Um, and we've had a, a lot of uh, mutual respect over the years. We've uh, come to many events and, and spent time together. And so uh, when Stephen called me and said, uh, how would you like to make a, a collaborative beer with us for the Saber event, um, I thought that was a, a fun and great idea. And so we, we put our heads together and started talking about what we would want to brew uh, to specifically pair with food. Um, this is really an event that's a lot about beer and a lot about food and, and trying to um, find uh, flavors that complement each other uh, and maybe contrast each other in both the beer and the food. And, and throughout uh, these two pairings tonight, and then hopefully as you walk around and sample all of the, all the other beers, you'll find some great pairings and um, uh, things that work to both uh, accentuate the food as well as accentuate the beer as you, you drink it with it. Um, this was a, a collaborative uh, uh, idea that we, we tried to bring together elements of the West Coast and, and some of our brewing style um, and the, the Midwest um, where Boulevard is. So we, we worked with local ingredients. Um, they used wood from, uh, from their local area, and I'll let them uh, talk about that as we go forward. 
Um, we brewed, or actually Scott in our small research brewery um, brewed the, the wort or the, uh, the base for the beer, and Scott will talk about what's in that. And then we shipped it out to Boulevard where they fermented it and then went through a barrel aging process and a bottle conditioning process, and we'll find out more about that in a minute. So hopefully you enjoy the, the beers, and uh, again, look forward to answering any questions. Well, Ken, uh, I have to correct you a little bit. I'm much older than Ken. <laughs> he just started his brewery way before we did. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think this is a neat thing. We've started, uh, it's, it's not new in the beer business, but relatively new, these collaborations, and they're kind of going on all over the country. Uh, we've done two or three of them at our brewery, and I know Sierra Nevada's done it. And I think it uh, speaks a lot to just the camaraderie and the, and the sharing of, of um, you know, expertise and ideas that are going on in the, uh, in the beer industry today. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, you know, you think about it back in the, you know, early 80s when Ken started and we started in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, American brewing industry was not looked upon very favorably uh, uh, from the beer culture in the entire world. And I think uh, what's really amazing in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, we've managed to really uh, turn some heads. And I think even a lot of the Europeans today would say probably a lot of the best beer in the world is being made in the United States. And so um, anyway, these beers are pretty interesting. And I think uh, one of the things that um, is kind of neat, if you look at, you all have a coaster, which you guys are welcome to take home tonight. These are uh, hand-printed in Kansas City by a guy named Brady Vest. And uh, he he's just down the street from the brewery. And he's a uh, you know, has a little art business, and he uh, hand prints all these on a real small press. And so he printed these, and these are actually the labels that are on the bottles. So he hand printed every label of, I don't know, four or 5,000 bottles. And then, of course, uh, we had a uh, voluntary uh, deal at the brewery. We had about 30 people show up, and we hand labeled them. So, so anyway, um, but I think it's pretty neat. And the name in Terra, uh, Terra Incognita really has to do with um, sort of the California Trail. That was our idea, as you know, really settlers, when they were going west, they, they bought their wagons in Kansas City in Westport and then, uh, you know, tried to get to California. And so we just wanted to try a real earthy beer based on that idea. So, uh, and Stephen will talk about it more, but we used a lot of ingredients from our brewery, and I think they did from theirs. So anyway... Um, I'm going to let uh, one of these guys talk because I think they should talk about this first pairing with the food. Do you want to do that? Does everybody have the first, has the first pairing? Oh, you want to go ahead and do that? Yeah, sure. Um, we haven't discussed the beer much uh, yet, but uh, one of the things that uh, we noticed uh, with this beer uh, and food is how different different foods and different food flavors bring out different aspects of the beer. Um, one of the post uh, or the, the bottle conditioning uh, yeasts that we used in this beer uh, as well as uh, Saccharomyces yeast was a, a strain called Britannomyces and it imparts uh, some unusual flavors I guess you could say to the beer. Uh, sometimes it's described as a horsey or a horse blanket or a sweaty kind of an earthy note. And uh, different foods and different flavors either enhance or suppress uh, the flavors of the Britannomyces. Um, oysters, uh, this, these oysters came from a small family oyster farm off the coast of California, close to us. Um, and uh, the saltiness uh, of the oysters uh, really seems to enhance uh, the Britannomyces flavor. No, go, go with some edamame. Yeah, something, you know, because it, it seems to be the, the salt, that brine salt, that really brings it out. So, Yeah, I think it really opens the beer up, a little bit of salt, in a very unusual way. Um, I don't know how many folks have had the chance to try a goza, and they have that nice uh, salty hint in the palate, and it works really well with that beer, as well as this beer, because... Uh, 
uh, in part because you have a nice dry finish. It's quite dry and light on the palate. And then that little bit of tartness, too, uh, really just lets that beer open up. And a little bit of salt just enhances all that. So, so maybe we should talk a little about the beer, the process, how we made the beer, how we came to it. Um, so this was a true collaboration. Um, what you have in your glass is 50% of the beers brewed by Sierra Nevada. 50% is made by Boulevard. Uh, we did all the fermentation. And we wanted to, like we talked about earlier, we wanted to kind of enhance the, uh, the areas where, where, these, where our breweries are. So Missouri, uh, if you think about Missouri or the, mid, or the Midwest, you think about wheat. Um, and we use a lot of wheat. We use about 60% of wheat in our portion of the beer. And then also in the southern part of Missouri, in the Ozarks, is uh, one of the most, uh, uh, one of the centers in the world for barrel manufacturing. There's a lot of oak grown over there, and there's a couple of really big uh, barrel manufacturers. So what we did is um, the portion that was made by Sierra Nevada was aged in our brewery in oak barrels, different oak barrels, and I'll go in detail about that. Then the two beers were blended, and then we bottled it, uh, like Steve said, with ball conditioning yeast and with, with Brettanomyces. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the process. Two different breweries, all bottled by us, and then Brettanomyces in the bottle. And maybe Scott can talk a little bit about their portion of the beer. I think uh, our, the, the base beer, uh, in our case and your case, was similar in ways. Uh, you know, both black in color. Uh, yours had a lot of wheat in it. We didn't use wheat. Uh, we used uh, just uh, pale malt a little bit of black malt, uh, and uh, Belgian candy sugar. Uh, we wanted to try to make something as dry as we could get uh, using, you know, sort of normal uh, practices, I guess. Um, and uh, the, uh, the hopping was done uh, with uh, Bravo, a variety called Bravo for bittering, and uh, Styrian Goldings for finishing. Um, Stephen did dry hop his beer a lot uh, after that with uh, East Kent Goldings. You mentioned that a little bit later, but uh, the um, the roast character. I was really surprised by how uh, how much that came, uh, uh, how how much it went down after the barrel aging. We didn't talk about the barrel aging part yet, but we will. Uh, but uh, certain pairings uh, will bring elements of that out as well, which is kind of funny. Uh, very curious. Every time I try this, uh, I get something completely different. It seems like. Uh, so, yeah, pretty simplistic, I guess, uh, in, in what we've done. I think we did about 20 barrels or something and sent that out to you. Um, and the fermentation you did with uh, our uh, Chico yeast uh, and finished off the, with a little bit of Westmall yeast. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then it went into barrels, uh, about 21 or so right. different barrels. Uh, all of the beer, that we, the, the wort that, that we produced went into barrel eventually. Uh, and spent uh, three months in barrel, and we had uh, wine barrels, we had whiskey barrels, bourbon barrels. Um, the wine were both red and white. Uh, we had some rye. Uh, wasn't some of it uh, local? Virgin oak, virgin yeah. oak also. Virgin oak also, yeah. And some of the barrels did get some additional oak spirals put in them for a little bit more oak character. It would have been nice if we had the time to uh, to let some of those beers stay in barrel longer, but... You know, three months is uh, a fairly good amount of time, and we knew we needed a fair amount of time for the beer to uh, condition uh, with the Britannomyces to get the flavor development we were looking for. So we had to kind of rush it along a little bit, I guess you could say. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit more about the barrels? Yeah, so um, we had 20, like I said, we had 20, 21 barrels, and out of those 21, uh, Steve and uh, Scott came down to Kansas City after three months to taste all the barrels. Um, Steve tells me that that was a horrible day. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not. Um, it, maybe it was the barbecue, right? Yeah. So uh, we had a lot of barbecue and we tasted the barrels. And um, out of those 21, only 12 made the cut. Um, when you age beer in barrels, uh, things can go in the right direction or things might not be the right direction like, like you, as you want it. Um, and um, we had, uh, like I said, two virgin oak barrels that really had a nice oak character. And then uh, the, uh, there was nine whiskey barrels, and two of them were also new, and then seven were used. They had been used by us with other beers. Some were with, from a, a rye whiskey, some were from a, a bourbon. And then you had about um, 10 used whiskey, uh, wine barrels, I'm sorry, 10 used wine barrels. We make wine in the brewery also. Boulevard makes a little bit of wine. 
And that was a blend of Cabernet Franc barrels and a couple of Chardonnay barrels. And some were really neutral. Some were, have been used about five times. So out of all those barrels, uh, we, we took the selection and, like I said, only about 12 uh, made the cut. Um, so when, um, at, when that happened, during that time, when we, or just before we did this blending, um, we brewed the beer and we um, wanted to uh, make sure that the aspects from each brewery was, was into the beer. And as you know, the Sierra Nevadas make some really, really nice hoppy beers. Uh, so what we did, um, their beer went into Missouri Oak while we dry hopped our beer. You know, that was kind of like um, the way that we had to do this. We didn't want to put a really high hop beer in oak in barrels because then it would be lost. So we wanted to have the, the hop character very fresh, and that's why our portion of the beer was heavily dry hopped with um, East Kent Goldings, and that was uh, Steve's advice to get the, really that earthiness in the beer also. So we used about two pounds per barrel of East Kent Goldings. So in the end, the beer will have about one pound per barrel uh, of East Kent Goldings. And then, um, then we bottled it and uh, added uh, uh, a strain of uh, champagne yeast and uh, a little bit of Brettanomyces. The beer then went into bottle conditioning, and that was about February, and it went into bottle conditioning for about uh, four weeks, and then we put the beer, we took the beer in a cooler environment. So um, the beer that you have here now is basically draft beer. We, that draft beer went the same, had the same uh, process as the bottle beer. So it also went to a bottle, con bottle conditioning, also with the Brettanomyces. Uh, but because this stayed about a month and a half in a warm condition, you can taste the Brettanomyces a little more than you can do in the bottle that you will take home tonight. Um, we also took a couple of bottles and left them warm uh, in the brewery just to see what the Brettanomyces would do. And after three months now, the Brettanomyces has really taken over and is a big, big aspect of the flavor profile of the beer. Um, we like that aspect of Brettanomyces because in the end, the name is Terra Incognita, Unknown Land. Um, it's an unknown beer when you open it. Um, that's kind of the idea behind it. It might have been evolved heavily or not. That's kind of up to you what you want to do with it. Uh, just to add a little bit to the, to the Brad and, and also the, the fact uh, that the, the beer was intentionally made very dry and one of the challenges using uh, Britannomyces is it, it'll continue to uh, survive and live for years and years and years, uh, unlike most strains that'll peter out and uh, stop uh, digesting the sugars. It'll, it'll uh, eat up the uh, harder to consume sugars that other yeasts can't eat and uh, will continue to, to make carbon dioxide and get the beer drier and drier. So if you start out with too much of a residual um, amount of sugar left in the beer when it's bottled, um, it can continue to ferment for months or years and will create very high pressures. So starting out with a fairly dry beer minimizes that, but still this beer will continue to develop some additional carbonation as it ages. And if you want to, uh, if, if you've got somebody here with you and you want to split your two bottles, um, you might want to drink one fairly fresh. And then if you uh, have a good place to age it, which would be temperatures that are not too extreme or not too cold, probably in the, the 60 Fahrenheit range would be ideal, 60 to 70 maximum. Um, that's a good temperature for the Brett to work, and it'll continue to, to create some uh, interesting flavors as it ages. Well, uh, so did everybody like the, uh, the oyster? Yeah? Um, I think when we were out at Sierra Nevada, we went out to kind of finish up this project, actually, and, and we tried a lot of the foods with uh, Adam, who was in charge of all the food here at the, the Saver, and... And we tried all these different things. He'd made all these salamis and cheese. In fact, that's what we'll have out uh, when you try these beers out on the floor today. There's different foods with them, but we kind of wanted to do something, uh, you know, typical of California. And Ken's a, Ken and I've uh, uh, eaten dozens of oysters many times after uh, beer events, and I know Ken loves them. And so we decided to have... Uh, Oysters flown in from California. These aren't East Coast oysters. These are West Coast oysters, right? And um, but anyway, did everybody like the the oysters, the pairing? Because I think one of the things too that uh, we wanted to do with this beer is make it a real food friendly beer, and I think it really is. I think it goes really well with a variety of different types of foods, and I think uh, uh, that was good. So, did anybody not like the the, the oysters? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
You didn't like the oysters? I don't like oysters. Well, Have would you, you ever tried an oyster? <laughs> would you bring yours up to me? <laughs> Actually, my only problem with the food pairing is uh, I'd like at least a dozen oysters, not just one. Anyway. Um, Stephen and Scott described the based beers, and um, from a formulation uh, and, and just a straight beer perspective, uh, the base beers are relatively simplistic. Um, you know, you've got a, one beer, but then was manipulated uh, by the use of uh, the different barrels that Stephen um, described, and then the second beer uh, with the post-fermentation dry hopping. Um, and so that's starting to where we get uh, the intricate uh, layers of flavor. Uh, in this beer that really weren't apparent uh, in just the base brew. Um, the, the combination of, of these two beers was, uh, was very complicated, um, and we spent most of a day uh, working our way through that, that project. And yes, it was arduous and painful. Um, but we uh, first had to sample uh, each of the barrels and make sure that the flavor profile had gone in the direction that we wanted. So we took samples from each of the barrels, uh, and we had a group, uh, the four of us and some other people. Uh, Ken, unfortunately, wasn't able to be there. Um, and we ranked the barrels, and we kind of uh, described what the, uh, the flavors were and selected uh, the ones that we felt uh, were suitable uh, to continue on with this project. Um, you know, as Stephen mentioned, sometimes when you're doing uh, barrel-aged beers, things can go a little bit sideways on you. And so there were some... Um, flavors uh, that we didn't think would, uh, would do as well married in, into this project. Um, after we had selected the barrels, we then had to look at um, different blend ratios and how we were going to put those together. So uh, we then blended uh, the barrels back and forth and tasted those uh, a number of times uh, to decide what that mix would be. And then we took uh, Stephen's base beer uh, and did uh, different blends and looking for that. We really wanted to get that 50-50 ratio. And so working with the different barrels uh, with Steve's beer as that 50%, we wanted to put together something that, that would bring out the flavor profile that we wanted. It was, uh, it, it was great fun. It was a great challenge. Um, everything was done uh, with uh, pipettes and with graduated cylinders so that we would be very accurate downstream when we, when we put the project together. Um, and then with the bottle conditioning, the yeast, and particularly the Britannomyces in there, um, all that work uh, came together to give you what I think is a phenomenal assortment and uh, levels of flavor in this beer. As Scott mentioned, every time, every time we drink this beer, particularly we drink it together and um, talk about the project, it, it always surprises us. Uh, somebody will come up with a new descriptor or new flavor aspect or aromatic quality uh, with the beer. And, and it's very exciting to try it um, over and over again. So hope you're enjoying. Uh, just one more comment about barrels. Um, I, uh, maybe a lot of us, when we think of barrel-aged beer, we, we're thinking of bourbon barrel-aged beer and that type of flavor profile. And we had a, you know, a healthy number of, of uh, spirits barrels in our mix, but we really wanted to be very careful that that didn't dominate the characteristic of the beer. And that's where the wine barrels came in. You get such a complex uh, uh, assortment of flavors from wine barrels uh, that, uh, you know, bourbon barrels, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of spirits flavor, whiskey flavor, that vanilla, oaky character, and we certainly wanted that to be a part of it. But uh, it's very easy, I think, for those flavors to dominate and take control of the beer. So that was really part of the, the biggest challenge to make sure that the blend was, was uh, not uh, one-sided in any way. And the result, in my opinion, is one of the most sort of, you know, complex beers uh, from a flavor point of view that, that I've had in recent years. It's, it's very uh, uh, inviting in lots of ways. So you see, uh, what's, what's coming out right now is the, uh, the flavor um, or the uh, food pairing that came, comes from Kansas City, and these are burned ends. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever had a beer that we could pair burned ends and oysters with at the same time. So that kind of speaks to the beer, how complex the beer is, and how it, how it was able to do that. Um, I think in this case, the, uh, the smoke, uh, there's also a little bit of uh, acidity in the, in the in the sauce and a little bit of sweetness, and I think all those compare really nice with the with the beer. 
There's a little bit of an acidity in the beer also from the Brettanomyces. And then there's the complexity of the oak um, that we've been talking about, it, the dark malt that gives a little bit of complexity also, and layer after layer. And think these, all these flavor hooks really work together with, this, uh, um, with these burn dance. John, you want to talk about the burn dance? You're from Kansas City. Sure. So how many people have been uh, to... I've, none of you have been to California, right? So, or from Kansas, California. How many people have been to Kansas City? Yeah. yeah, there we go. Well, so have you ever had barbecue in Kansas City? Um, you know, people love to argue about barbecue, I've realized, you know, whether you're from, uh, you know, the South or from Texas or from Kansas City. But Kansas City is definitely pretty proud of their barbecue. And... Um, and uh, this was actually, uh, we included Oklahoma Joe's, which is a really great, not really an old barbecue place, but I think they've only been around maybe eight or ten years now. But um, everybody in Kansas City kind of thinks they're one of the top two or three anyway. So, um, and, and like I said, uh, I think the, the, oh, the, the fat, really, for lack of a uh, more uh, correct thing to say is kind of what real, really works nice with this beer. And, uh, and I do think this is an excellent, excellent food beer. But um, yeah, a lot of these uh, uh, barbecue places in Kansas City are really funky. You know, they, a lot of them don't even serve beer. I went to one the other night called LC's. I've lived in Kansas City for 35 years. And I finally went, I've heard about LC's. And I was going out to a Royals game, and this guy says, well, we were hungry, so we stopped at LC's. And uh, it's this little kind of gas station place. And I went in, and, and uh, you know, LC's sitting there counting the money. And his daughter is uh, dishing out the barbecue. And, you know, there were quite a few people in there on their way to the game. But, uh, yeah, we have literally hundreds of barbecue joints in Kansas City. You know, um, th there's always one that you think like, oh, this one is superior. And there's a, but once you do that, then you kind of get, I, I mean, we never do that. We always think like, okay, we're pretty neutral. And we say, like, okay, these are perfect. These will blend and these will not make the blend. You're right. There's always one barrel that you was like, if only we could keep this for a couple more months, that would be great beer. But, you know, we were on, we were on track here to make, a, make this project and we didn't have another choice. We did at the beginning when we made these blends, we, like Scott said, the barrels that were bourbon earlier or whiskey earlier, or especially the ones that were new or fresh from a, uh, a distillery, would overwhelm really quick. And in the end, we added uh, two of those that we initially thought we wouldn't end. We thought they were going to overwhelm. And one thing to keep in mind, you know, when we're tasting these beers at that stage, there's no carbonation or very little carbonation. So you kind of have to imagine that into the beer, which is really, a, I think, a you know, kind of a hard part of it, because the beer doesn't taste that great then, really. You have to almost uh, imagine it with the carbonation, which comes much later. Also, so, also the bread. Yeah, also the bread wasn't in it, and uh, that's a big wild card. So, uh, and, and, you know, this whole bottle conditioning thing, I think, is really interesting. Uh, Ken's, Ken's probably, probably the largest bottle conditioning brewery in the world, I would, I would think. And uh, we might be the second. I don't. I don't know. Maybe the only one that's close yeah. is in Australia. Uh, yeah. Oh, Cooper. Cooper's. Cooper's. Yeah. So we both. That's one of the things. Uh, both breweries. We. Uh, and and frankly, I got it from Ken. It was a little play out of their playbook that that we adopted early on. But it really gives beer uh, in a lot of ways. And and you know we have a lot of conversations now. It's not always the right thing to do in a beer. But um, it definitely uh, makes beer, I think we both believe firmly that it uh, uh, keeps beer fresher longer and uh, just makes beer not age the way a, a non-bottle conditioned beer would age. And it gives it a little bit of a, um, you know, different, more um, round flavor. Well, it's live beer. So I mean, the majority of beers sold in this country is either... 
pasteurized uh, after packaging or sterile filtered, meaning everything's been stripped out of it, so there's no yeast, uh, n nothing that can grow. Um, our breweries produce styles of beer that have fairly robust amounts of malt and higher alcohol, and so they inherently get some stability from those ingredients. And we both have modern breweries that we can keep uh, quite hygienic, and we have practices that help that. Um, it's not something that the majority of light lager breweries could do and pull off without some sort of a, sort of a problem. But uh, all st our styles of beer, we can bottle condition and have live yeast, and, and in this case, uh, you know, strains of different strains of yeast in the bottle surviving. Yeah. Questions. I know um, the, 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 the portion from Sierra Nevada went down to 2.1, and if I'm not mistaken, our beer went down to about 2.8, uh, something in that range, so makes a blend of about 2.4, which is a kind of on the high side when you work with Brettanomyces. Um, so you want to you have it as dry as possible. So my word of advice, when you store a bottle and you open it up after a year, don't, don't point it at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, go ahead. It definitely changes flavor with food here, which is pretty neat. Um, I don't know if it's the change from the oyster to the barbecue, or is it actually the temperature comes up, I'm noticing some different flavors. Do you have a, an optimal service temperature, or do you kind of play with it? Personally, it's your service. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, when you have a very complex beer uh, with lots of layers of flavor and aroma, it definitely changes. The, the character will change um, in the glass as, as the temperature increases. And, you know, cold beers, uh, the temperature, uh, it will suppress, particularly the aromatic of the beer. And um, if, you, if you take quite a while uh, with a glass of beer and if you swirl it, you know, when you get the aromatic and you're letting that uh, beer breathe, you'll get a little bit of oxidation going on in there, you know, and different aromas will come out. <clears throat> As it warms up, different things will volatilize, and you'll get different characters. In regards to this beer with uh, the food, well, with temperature, that is very accurate uh, with this beer. But uh, with uh, the burnt ends and... Um, uh, the meat and the sauce uh, and that different flavor, it, it just really tends to enhance, um, even though it's a relatively dry, uh, thin beer uh, from a sugar profile, uh, it really seems to enhance more of the maltiness, uh, the roundness uh, of the beer, um, and uh, that little bit of roast note. So the, the flavor combination on your palate uh, just draws you to uh, different attributes within the flavor profile of the beer. I think that's that's one of the really fun things is uh, how uh, how you get different sensations as you go from the top of your glass down to the bottom, and that really happens. So, you know, we'll try that with any beer you want to talk about, and you'll get different sensations as you go through it. Uh, but as I, I mentioned earlier, every time I try this beer, I get something a little different, and I'm getting something uh, tonight that I haven't gotten before with this barbecue. I get this really curious fruit type character that I, I guess I'd describe somewhere between plum and, and grape. Is that just me? Am I crazy? <laughs> but I didn't get that yesterday, so I'm pretty happy about that. Something new every time. You know, you know I have to admit, when we went out to, we shipped the beer out to uh, Chico, what, probably a month or so ago, Stephen and I flew out and had a, spent a, a, a great day with these guys, and we, we they, they, they were uh, filming a bunch of stuff for this event for the Saver event, and so we were trying all these different food things to match them up with the, the beer, and, uh, you know, the beer was tasting so good that actually I, I drank a little more than I should have, you know? <laughs> I mean, I just had these beers around, we were all doing this, and after a while, and, I, you know, I typically I don't drink a lot of beer all day long like that, but, uh, but uh, it was really fun. You know, it's difficult when you've got a 750-ml bottle and they want you to take the cork out and then pour off these things for the camera, you know, and so you pour three or four glasses of beer and then you have to pour three or four more, but you have to take another cork out and everything, and it's such a waste. Uh, so we did, we did our personal bests uh, that day to make sure that that didn't happen. So uh, 
when we were designing the beer? Yeah. Well, we had, the, the whole idea was Terra Incognita, the uh, California Trail. If you think about it, first thing that comes to mind is dirt, really. I mean, if you, if you think back in those days, those people, we had, we had to suffer a lot. So we, we tried to get all this, you know, earthiness in, the, in this beer. So that's why the color's kind of brown. That's why we had the Breton Mice in there. That's why we had the East Kent Goldings dry hopping. You know, all those flavors is really what we had in mind. And then when you think about earthy notes in the, in the beer, I, one of the first things that come to mind to me is, uh, is mushrooms. Uh, because they always, I mean, the earthiness that really connects with that. And, and I know the chef, uh, Adam, used the baked salamis with a lot of mushrooms. And you should really, really try them. They're, it's delicious. I had half a plate yesterday after, this, after Oklahoma Joe's. <laughs> Did that answer your question? Yeah, okay. I think about 8%, right? Yeah, it's right yeah, at 8%. I think about 8%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was this a color you were hoping for? I would say so. I mean, we, we knew that we wanted the beer to be pretty dark in color, um, but uh, I mean, what, what I'm pretty, pretty pleased about is that uh, you really get these chestnut uh, colors when you really want to look. I wish I had some. I could check it out. But uh, uh, you have these amazing colors coming through there. That's, that's kind of something that, that's interesting with, with dark beers. Sometimes they go uh, really red when you look through them. Sometimes they're very, very opaque. And sometimes you get these chestnut colors. And, and I'm not sure. Maybe some of the wine uh, barrel character uh, played into that a little bit, but uh, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, we, we use a little bit of uh, American candy sugar, so they, the one with that really tastes like uh, molasses. Uh, I thought that would be ni nicer in this beer. And then also we used um, midnight wheat from uh, Breeze, for those of our home brewers, um, just to give that really nice dark or brownish color. Mm. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we were at a Thing today earlier another beer event and actually Jim Cook was talking about something I, it's something I uh, think about we think about a lot and you think about um, a lot of the styles of beer like Ken you know making a pale ale and you know the beers that we've made uh, I mean even uh, if you, in the state of Missouri there's a uh, I got this a guy gave me this I visited the old Falstaff beer uh, brewery and um, in um, St. Louis, and the guy that was the, he was the last employee there. He was there to keep the pumps on so the place didn't flood. And um, he gave me this great thing, and it hangs in our brewery, and it lists all the breweries that were in Missouri, in the state of Missouri from 1802 to 1970-something when they printed this thing. And there were like, you know, uh, uh, 230 breweries that had operated at one time or another during that time period. And it's pretty amazing, you know, there were wheat beer breweries and there were, you know, lager brewers and ale brewers and all kinds of probably Belgian brewers and, you know, people that immigrated and came to this country and made beer. So, and I thought it was interesting, uh, all these styles, you know, we think, and so we started making styles of beer that were based on these older styles that nobody wanted to do or they'd kind of died out and we, we brought them back. And, and then the point he made today that I thought was really good is that when those beers were developed, they weren't styles. They were just what those people had at hand. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, um, I hope not too many people from the VA are here, but we, we get very, very caught up in these styles of beer. And uh, I think that's what's neat about this beer. This beer uh, really has no style. And I think it's just a collaboration of, of materials and ingenuity and, and brewers to make something extra special. And I, I think um, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time to be in the beer business. Uh, it's, it's good for us. We love making the beer. But it's even better for you guys because you get to drink it. I'll add a little bit to that. So when I started, there were, I think, right around 40 breweries left in America. And the, uh, the small brewing industry was in terrible shape. The, uh, the brewers that had survived Prohibition, and there was somewhere around 800 of them that had survived and opened back up again, producing um, generally lager beers. Um, towards the end of, uh, 
of the 70s and, and into the early 80s, um, they were struggling to survive and, and pretty much got to the low point of uh, the U.S. brewing industry. Um, and in part, um, I think a lot of them failed because they were trying to emulate the direction that the bigger brewers were going with beer styles, so lighter lagers and less and less flavor and l lower amounts of hops and, and everything that uh, the, the big brewers could do very efficiently and better. Um, it's, it's hard to make a, a very flawless light lager beer. I mean, the big brewers in this country do an amazing job of producing consistent batch-to-batch beer. It, it may not have a lot of character and a lot of excitement, but it's a consistent product. Uh, a little brewer in, a, in an old uh, antiquated brewery that survived prohibition who didn't have any money to reinvest in technology and the most modern bottling equipment and all the things that helps contribute to, to flavor stability, they, they couldn't compete making those beers at the, at the same price point and same quality levels. Uh, only a few of them really realized that there was maybe a different direction that they could take their business and in most cases it was too late. And, and they end up all pretty much all folding, um, but but Fritz Maytag in '65 with him purchasing Anchor and starting to realize that American beer should be something that's special and be distinctive, uh, he helped sort of start that whole process of of you know let's do something different, let's uh, make our beers unique, and if you're a small brewer, that's about the only way you can survive is to sort of break the mold and not try to produce um, sort of the the main styles of beer that the big brewers do. Um, our industry today is, is about 2,000 breweries. We're still only about 6% of U.S. beer sales. If you add us all up, and that's the, the Boston beer and ourselves down to the smallest brew pub. Um, so even though there's a lot of us, um, it's still a fairly small slice of the, the whole American uh, beer market. Um, but what's happened in the last 20 years has really revolutionized brewing, not only in the U.S., but globally. Um, there are a lot of European brewers who are looking to America for innovation and they come over here and they go to the craft brewing uh, conference or they go to the Great American Beer Festival and they realize that you know we maybe are missing the boat here and we need to to look at what we're doing in our countries and, and try to reinvigorate the, the beer industry. Uh, I've been to Germany recently and, and um, I was a a little underwhelmed with uh, a lot of the lager beers that I um, remembered as being hoppier and maltier when I first started traveling there in the, in the late 70s and 80s. And today, they're, you know, most of the big ones have headed down the same path as, as our big brewers had with lighter and lighter and, and uh, you know, less interesting and, and maybe more approachable styles for the mainstream consumer, but certainly not as uh, unique and distinctive and, and uh, what made a lot of those brands great was you know, a lot of hops or a lot of malt or some particular character that they had developed over the years, and, and now they're, they're sort of heading into the, a bit of the same sameness. Um, there are some brewers, though, in Germany who are starting to do things like dry hopping. That, that had been um, somewhat uh, considered illegal under the, the, the German purity law, even though it's hops, uh, the way most people interpreted it had been the hops should be added to the kettle, not added to the fermenter. Uh, but there's been, a, I guess, a, a loosening or a reinterpretation of that, and now that's considered okay to add hops to the, to the aging tanks like many of us do for, for adding particular aromas and characters to beers. So they're starting to, to branch out and to innovate and to uh, hopefully uh, create beers again that will hopefully in, engender a, a whole new consumer who can appreciate beer for more than just a, a cold, refreshing beverage, but something that's got a lot of character and taste and, and uh, diversity. That sparked a few, yeah. Uh, what do you mean this beer? Would you make some test batches to kind of guide you in a certain direction, or was it a one-shot deal where people just started brewing and that was the beginning of the beer? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked a lot about it, and we uh, came up with, you know, sort of really general guidelines in terms of the direction we wanted to go, and then we just went for it. Uh, that was kind of part of the design. I mean, we, we were launching into this project, and we really didn't know where the end game was going to be. Well, Scott runs our research brewery, uh, which is a 10-barrel brewery, and so he regularly brews uh, one-offs and hundreds of, of different beers, so uh, he's got a pretty good handle on you know, how to, to interpret a, a thought and produce that beer that tastes like that. So it, it's not as if he hasn't done it before uh, hundreds of times. So. The bottom line is these guys are good. <laughs> I have a question about the, uh, the use of barrels. But first, I'd like to say to Steve and John, welcome. 
Thank you. There you go. The, uh, the barrel, I'm a big bourbon fan. And uh, as people know, the birth of, you know, when it went from kind of corn liquor to bourbon was the barrel, the charred barrel. It was actually an accident. Have you ever experienced, like, experimented with a raw barrel, that an oak cooper barrel that's been charred but never used to age whiskey or wine? Just a raw barrel. Have we? Um, yeah. No, no, we haven't. I know. Um, yeah. The, the, there's a company in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's probably the world leader making barrels. And um, they do a lot of um, alternative oak products also. And they've been lately been approaching more and more the craft brewers. Um, and you could basically you could think about these. What they want to do is, okay, you have these barrels. To make these barrels, it's pretty expensive. But to make the individual parts... And as brewers, we have stainless steel tanks. Do we really need these barrels? Because if you think about what a winemaker, why a winemaker needs the barrel, he wants microoxygenation. We brewers really don't need microoxygenation. We don't really want it in most cases. Uh, even though in a, in a darker beer, it's kind of neat because it kind of mellows the beer out. You know, you, you, you're, um, you um, reduce the tannins, and it, it, it adds to the character of the beer. Um, so I, you know, it's a it's an evolution that's happening right now in the wine industry, and I think it's going to cross over into the beer industry also. Have you ever worked with virgin barrels? Well, there were two of them in this mix were wine barrels. They were uh, medium toast. That was about the best I could come up with. I mean, they, these guys, uh, their name, what's the company's name again? Um, Independence. In, Independence Dave. Uh, we, we were there, we went to visit them, and then uh, it's pretty amazing how far the wine or the barrel-making industry has gone. If you look at how they make barrels for bourbon, the flames fly everywhere. If they make barrels for wine, they go with temperature profiles to go to a different temperature to get the vanillin out to another temperature to get more, you know, another compound out. It's, it's very amazing. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, it's, the, this whole barrel thing is really, uh, I think, fascinating. I don't, I don't know, you know, you know, I don't think everybody's going to drink barrel-aged beer in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but it's really a fascinating uh, study. Uh, you know, I mean, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, definitely, uh, all beer touched wood at some, you know, was in a, in a barrel. Now, they used to pitch them back in the day, and I don't know... But it, it, I'm sure there was a time in history where uh, just almost every commodity went into a wood barrel, and, uh, you know, beer was one of them. And, of course, you, you know, at the end of the day, you have three outcomes. You either uh, have beer, which you sell, and that's all good, or you have something better than beer, and you keep that for yourself to drink, or you end up with vinegar and you pickle your pig's feet. So, you know, all things were, uh, you know... Uh, positive things, but I, I think we're not really that interested in making the vinegar. So um, anyway, uh, but it's a really fascinating thing that's going on right now. And then I think you see what uh, Sierra Nevada, their capabilities, and, and we also very interested in the science of all this and the reproducibility of these products that are kind of, uh, you know, 100 or 150 years ago, it was all happenstance. And I think we're kind of in the happenstance part of it, but then we're looking at ways to actually turn that into commercial, uh, reproducible brands, really, ultimately. So it's, it's a really interesting time, I think, in the beer industry. Ken, you had a good story about barrel. I made up the numbers, but... Um, <laughs> um, oh, that is, we had a question yesterday about... Uh, uh, can we have, uh, you know, is everybody going to make barrel-aged beers, or why doesn't don't more people do? Um, you know, it's a very small fraction of, of the beers that, that these guys produce, that we produce. Um, even uh, friends of ours at Russian River, who um, Vinny and his wife, uh, Natalie, are some of the, the best barrel-aged uh, brewers for making sours and other styles of barrel-aged beer, they limit it to a small percentage of their production as well. It's very challenging to do consistently. Uh, when you're dealing with wood, particularly wood that's maybe been at another winery or a distillery sitting for years and years, um, things grow in the wood and get embedded in the wood, and, and it's really tough to, to truly sterilize them. Um, brewers uh, uh, today typically 
do not like things like Brett uh, wandering around the brewery and potentially getting into all of their brands because it's uh, it's a yeast that's you know tough to deal with once it's in your your brewery. So uh, they keep a separate uh, facility for doing their bread aged beers and. Uh, we've done one project with Russian River, and we were very careful to, to keep it isolated. But anytime you you have wood, you've got unknowns, you've got bugs and, and yeasts and things that you can't really sterilize like a piece of stainless steel. So it's a romantic and fun thing to do, and brewers are, are doing a lot with uh, sort of these alternative brewing styles and methods. But it's probably not for the faint of heart, and. Uh, uh, not necessarily something that anybody would want to do on a large scale. There's some breweries that, that do a lot of wood age uh, beers, but they're small breweries doing it on a small scale and, and with limited distribution. Any more questions? Maybe I could ask for a little bit of feedback about the beer from you. Any? Interesting notes, uh, aromas, flavors that are coming out to you that really strikes a chord, or uh, anything, uh, any comments? Need some more? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a question, yeah. Smoky, yeah. I was thinking that too. In fact, yesterday I was thinking uh, at the um, uh, uh, at the salon yesterday that maybe a, uh, just a touch of smoke malt would have been kind of nice in it. But I think we got some of that from the barrel anyway. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it, the the complexity of this beer, I don't think any of us would make this on a regular basis. Um, it's just usually when I think about making new beer, I try to make it as simple as possible, you know. But this was like putting everything and everything in, into a beer, and I probably would never do that. So I'm pretty happy that it came out like it is, to be honest. <laughs> also, I wanted to add one more thing about barrel aging. I think it's a misconception that you need barrels to make a sour beer. You don't. There's plenty of beers out there that make, or, or breweries that make good sour beers in stainless steel. They don't need to go in oak. Just on a side note. As long as we're sitting here together, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale for me. And I'm one of those guys that smuggles his beer around in my suitcase when I travel because we can't get it in California. No, I think uh, speaking as a brewer and, and knowing a lot of brewers, I mean, today there's so much variety and there's so many great beers out there. I mean, for me, when I'm traveling, I try to taste what's local and, and uh, you know, support the local brewers. Um, in my refrigerator would be mainly my beers, but um, so we've got a good friendship with Russian River and, and Vinny uh, and us trade beers, and, and he's always got pale ale in his refrigerator, and I've, uh, I've oftentimes got his beer in my refrigerator. Yeah, you know, it's a common thing. Uh, I don't know how many times people have asked me, what's the be best beer you've ever had? And, you know, as a brewer, or, or which beer of yours do you like the best? And you know, I always say, well, you know, that's like asking you what, which one of your ch children you like the best. And, you know, until recently, uh, you know, that's what I would say, but uh, I've had one of my children kind of fall out of favor recently. And so uh, I'm not going to tell you which one, but uh, anyway, it's kind of a hard thing, but it's a good, good way to keep people from uh, asking that question. And I think a lot of, uh, one thing I've come to is that... Um, you know, people say, well, what's the best beer you ever had in your life? And, and you know what? It could have not been that great a beer. I think a lot of drinking a beer is the, your experience drinking that beer. It's like where you were in that moment in time, and you said to yourself, this is the greatest beer I've ever had. You know, I mean, you don't even think it, but you remember that. And it's more about you than it is the beer. So, you know, uh, on any given day... Uh, you know, it could be a different beer for a lot of different reasons.
Well, you know, it's a pretty easy club to join, actually. Uh, you know, you got to make, and you know, really, I think, um, you know, uh, I think making, you know, having the intent, uh, you know, people look at breweries and, and you know, the big breweries kind of get a bad rap sometimes because, uh, you know, of the type of beer they make. But, you know, they're amazing industries, and I think, uh, or businesses, and as Ken and I, you know, get to know the brewing industry, uh, you know, you've got to marvel at somebody that can make that much beer as well as they do. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. But I really think uh, it's not the size of the brewery. It's really the intent of the brewer. And you have to be committed to making really great beer. And I think that's sort of the community of brewers is that, uh, you know, if that's your intent when you start your brewery and you, you want to do that, I think there's a lot of help from the brewing side. There's uh, very few things that I think that Ken or Steve wouldn't share with us or vice versa or with most brewers. I think behind the breweries are really open places. Heck, we all try to compete to write papers and, you know, do research and, and uh, spread the, the information that we have, you know. But then again, it's a competitive business. So when it comes to selling beer, it gets real competitive. And uh, But it's I think almost like no other industry I know of, there is a incredible um, brotherhood of, uh, of knowledge sharing, you know, within the people. And I don't know, Ken might want to say some more about that, but... Yeah, I was actually earlier getting ready to, to punch John out because he stole one of my tap handles, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. And, <laughs> um, no, I think the Brewers Association actually is, is today probably one of the, you know, the, the world's greatest resources for getting into the craft brewing business. So go to the website. There's lots of resources available there. Craft Brewers Conference is a, a great place to go and meet vendors. And um, when I started, there was none of that. So you had to build your own mash town and kettle and all those things. But today, there's lots and lots of uh, suppliers who were um, furnishing equipment for the industry. I come. I'm, I'm originally from Belgium, and um, if you look at the 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 industry here compared to the, especially in Europe, um, it's totally different. There's a lot of camaraderie, um, and I think the reason why it's different here than it is in, in, in Europe, because it's, Europe is so traditional. Everything that they do has been made before, it has been done before, and there's not a lot of innovation. And as long as you don't, if, as long as you innovate and you try to make something new, you're not gonna try to steal something from somebody else, and there's generosity. But if you do, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't work that way anymore. And I think that's why that's the big difference between this industry and what you see in, in Europe is, is that tradition. And, and you look at each other and they see, well, well you've made a fantastic beer. I'm going to try to mimic that and take your market share. And that's not what, that's not what this is about. This, is, this craft beer movement here is about innovation and trying to make great beers and try to help each other. And as a result, it's now probably one of the most booming beer industries in the, in the world, I think. Um, I would add on that note within the, the craft industry, um, Stephen and I have been uh, very good friends for a very long time, and, and we've traded advice and information back uh, a number of times over the years from when you were going to do some wet hop beer brewing years ago uh, to last year when we started uh, getting involved in the Ovila Belgian uh, beer project. And, and I was having problems with fermentation and, and with different aspects of yeast handling. And I would get on the phone or send Stephen an email, and, and he would always get back to me. And uh, we would taste, he tasted the beers and gave me honest critiques. Um, you know, when, when we share that information, uh, it's all with the intent of making just the best quality beer that we can, never with the intent of uh, Stephen making mine or my making Stephen's beer. You know, we're, uh, we're all good at what we do, we're all confident in, in what we do, and the whole idea is to express um, your passion and your interpretation of a style uh, in an art form, which I think uh, brewing truly is. Oh, that we did it first? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh-oh, we better cut it off before yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. go at it. That's a good place to stop it. Now I'm thinking there's a few people out there that want to go out and start a brewery. Yeah, 
Well, there's uh, just a few beers right outside that door waiting for you all. Thank you for coming to the salon to savor and a big hand for our panelists tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Savor Salon. Craft Beer Radio is a mostly weekly beer podcast where we attempt to educate and entertain. If you haven't heard our podcast, we invite you to find us on iTunes or go to our website at craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Please visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.